0: The House and Senate are both in recess. The House will return the week of August 23rd, that is next week, and will be in session for several days that week, and then they'll return to their previously scheduled August recess, scheduled through September 20th. The Senate will return on September 13th. Last week in the Senate, the Senate worked through the weekend last weekend, making it two weekends in a row for a body that usually considers itself tuckered out from a Monday evening through Thursday early afternoon schedule. On Sunday, the Senate voted to adopt the Cinema portman Amendment to H.R. 3684 by a vote of 68 to 29. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the bill as amended, setting up a vote on final passage for the early morning hours of Tuesday. Before that vote occurred, an agreement was reached to allow that vote to take place later on Tuesday morning. When the time came, the vote was 69 to 30, with 19 Republicans voting with all 50 Democrats. Majority Leader Schumer then, as he had promised, brought up a motion to proceed to consideration of S. Con Res 14, the budget resolution that would unlock the door to the Democrats' plan to spend $3.5 trillion on so-called human infrastructure. That motion passed by a vote of 50 to 49. Under an agreement that had been worked out previously, both sides yielded back their 25 hours of debate time on the budget resolution, and the Senate moved immediately into its third voterama of the year. For the next 15 hours, Senators offered 40 non-binding amendments to the resolution. On Wednesday morning at 3.51 a.m., the Senate proceeded to a vote on the budget resolution as amended. The resolution carried by a vote of 50 to 49. Then Majority Leader Schumer brought up a motion to discharge S-1, the Corrupt Politicians Act, from the Committee on Rules and Administration. Remember that bill had never been passed by the committee because it was stuck in committee on a tie vote. The only way for the Senate to deal with it was to employ a motion to discharge the bill from the committee, which requires a vote of the full Senate. So Schumer brought up the motion to discharge, and it passed by a vote of 50 to 49. One final note, thanks to Senators Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, who were the only Republicans left in the chamber when Majority Leader Schumer tried to pull a fast one. As almost everyone had left the chamber in the middle of the night after a long day of voting, Schumer, hoping to catch the Republicans napping, called for passage of S-1 by unanimous consent. Cruz immediately objected and shut down the maneuver. Then, just for good measure, Cruz also objected to unanimous consent to confirm a whole bunch of Biden foreign policy nominees on the grounds that he wanted a full debate on the Biden administration's failures regarding the Nord Stream 2 pipeline between Russia and Germany. And then they were done. Update on the eviction moratorium. As predicted, the CDC's new 60-day eviction moratorium was challenged in court by two state chapters of the National Association of Realtors. On Friday, Federal District Judge Dabney Friedrich, a Trump appointee, let stand the new eviction moratorium, despite her belief that the CDC lacked the authority to issue the moratorium. She said it had to stay in effect because it was so similar to the eviction moratorium that the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit had ruled could remain in force while it was being challenged in the courts and because the, the Supreme Court had not struck it down. Quote, these intervening decisions call into question the D.C. Circuit's conclusion that the CDC is likely to succeed on the merits, she wrote. For that reason... Absent the D.C. Circuit's judgment, this court would vacate the stay, but the court's hands are tied, unquote. Judge Friedrich's ruling was immediately appealed. On Saturday, that is yesterday, the plaintiffs asked the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals for immediate action to prevent enforcement of the eviction ban. Lawyers for the plaintiffs said that DOJ attorneys defending the eviction ban had agreed to a schedule that would call for filing of briefs by Wednesday, and a ruling from the Court of Appeals by Thursday. A panel of judges from the Circuit Court of Appeals agreed to the schedule, but did not agree to issue a ruling by Thursday, and they did not agree to the Realtors' demand for immediate relief. Stay tuned. Now more on the infrastructure and budget resolution measures. The Senate finally passed the infrastructure package on Tuesday morning, and the budget resolution on Wednesday morning. And the House Democrat leadership followed that news with an announcement that the House would return from its August recess during the week of August 23rd to take up the budget resolution and voting rights legislation. Democrat leaders in both House and Senate have a tough job ahead of them. Keep in mind, the Senate is split 50-50. So the defection of even one Democrat there is a catastrophic event. In the House, Speaker Pelosi can afford to lose just three Democrat votes. In other words, just about any Democrat in either the House or Senate can gum up the works. Weeks ago, Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer tipped their hat to the power of the progressives in each of their caucuses by declaring that the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill would be passed before the infrastructure bill was signed into law. That's because progressives had made clear they were scared that moderate Democrats would vote for the smaller infrastructure package, but not vote for the larger reconciliation package where most of the progressives' policy demands reside. Moderates were unhappy, but what could they do? Not much. Until Friday, that is, when nine of them sent a letter to Speaker Pelosi declaring that they would not vote for the budget resolution until they had first voted through the infrastructure bill that the Senate had just sent them. Of course, the progressives were infuriated. Voting for the infrastructure bill first would be a reversal of Pelosi's promise and would create a situation wherein the moderates got what they wanted, a small bore infrastructure bill, while giving them the opportunity to vote later against the much larger, more liberal reconciliation bill. Speaker Pelosi appeared to be caught between a rock and a hard place. If she tried to appease the moderates, she would lose support among the progressives. The moderates say that's okay. They'll make up whatever votes go missing from Democrats with votes from Republicans who want to be seen as being able to work in a bipartisan fashion. And the progressives could very well have decided to take the opportunity to show the moderates just who was really running the House Democratic Caucus by voting against the infrastructure bill thereby defeating the moderates' wish. If, on the other hand, Pelosi said no to the moderates in order to keep the progressives happy, she might lose nine votes on the budget resolution, and then the progressives would be stymied. Speaker Pelosi did not get to be speaker by being stupid. She may be far too liberal for anyone on this call, but she is not stupid. So she thought about it, and on Sunday, that is today, she sent a dear colleague letter to House Democrats informing her Democrat allies that she, quote, requested that the Rules Committee explore the possibility of a rule that advances both the budget resolution and the bipartisan infrastructure package, end quote. Voting to adopt such a rule would not be the same as voting to pass either measure. A rule merely sets the terms for the floor debate on the resolution or resolutions in question, but it would possibly be one way of showing both sides that they were linked at the hip, By late Sunday afternoon, none of the nine moderates who sent the letter on Friday had commented on this potential strategy. Now to masking kids. President Biden said Tuesday that he is checking to see if he has the authority to overrule governors and local officials in the 50 states in order to, I'm sorry, to order universal masking in public schools. "Quote: I don't believe that I do have that power thus far. He told reporters at the White House, we're checking that. That sounds remarkably and suspiciously like the same locution he used two weeks ago when he said he did not believe he had the authority to order an extension of the CDC-issued eviction moratorium less than 24 hours before the CDC issued a new eviction moratorium. Now to Andrew Cuomo. Soon-to-be former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced early last week that he would step down in the wake of a devastating report from the state's attorney general asserting that he had sexually harassed at least 11 women. On Friday, Speaker Carl Heastie of the New York Assembly declared that the New York Assembly would no longer pursue its impeachment inquiry against the governor. Some legislators had urged even after Cuomo's announcement that the Assembly should continue its impeachment efforts to ensure that Cuomo could never again hold state office in the Empire State. Heastie said attorneys had advised the Assembly's Judiciary Committee that the state constitution does not allow for an impeachment of a former elected official no longer in office. There are ongoing county-level criminal investigations of the sexual harassment allegations. The state attorney general's office is still investigating potential misuse of government resources in the writing of a book on the governor's experiences with the coronavirus pandemic that paid him $5 million, and federal prosecutors are investigating his administration's handling of information regarding deaths at nursing homes. Now the latest on the debt limit. As noted earlier, Senate Democrats introduced their budget resolution without a provision to raise the debt limit and continued the game of chicken launched earlier. Republican leader McConnell reiterated his determination not to provide any Republican votes for a measure to raise or suspend the debt limit. On Tuesday, Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson determined to show the world that McConnell was accurately reflecting the will of the Senate Republican conference circulated a letter on the floor of the Senate during the budget resolution Botarama and got 46 of his colleagues to sign it. The letter said, quote, we should not default on our debts under any circumstances. If Democrats threaten a default, it will only be because they refuse to vote for the debt ceiling increase necessitated by their own irresponsible spending, end quote. President Biden asked about the likelihood of a credit crisis. If neither side blinked, said, quote, nope, they're not going to let us default. $8 trillion of that is on the Republicans' watch, end quote. Here's my concern. We may be watching the setup for a scheme to entice Democratic Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona to cave on their support for the filibuster and agree to join with their Democrat colleagues in invoking the nuclear option. Here's how that would work. We come back from the August recess in mid-September with two weeks to go before the government runs out of money. Democrats take their continuing resolution and add a provision suspending the debt limit for, say, two years. Republicans refuse to vote for it, and it cannot break a filibuster. As the clock winds down and the September 30 funding deadline approaches, Majority Leader Schumer goes to Manchin and cinema and says, this is no longer an argument about some arcane Senate rule. This is the full faith and credit of the U.S. government on the line now. Republicans are so determined to make trouble for us, they're willing to do something that's never been done before. They're willing to let us default on our debt payments. The only option we have at this point is to invoke the nuclear option and eliminate the filibuster so we can move this vital legislation with 51 votes. Are you with us? Keep your eyes on this one. Now to immigration. The July numbers are out, and they're a doozy. The federal government says it made 212,672 apprehensions of people illegally trying to cross the southern border last month. That's a 13% increase from one month ago and the highest number in 21 years. Trying to put the best face possible on these numbers, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas stressed that the number does not represent the number of individual illegal immigrants who were captured crossing the border unlawfully. Apparently, at least some of them were caught at least twice in the same month. On Thursday, according to a leaked audio tape that was reported by Fox News, Secretary Secretary Mayorkas met with Border Patrol agents in Texas and said that the border crisis is, quote, unsustainable. And, quote, we're going to lose, unquote, if, quote, borders are the first line of defense. A couple of days ago, I was down in Mexico and I said, look, you know, if our borders are the first line of defense, we're going to lose. And this is unsustainable. He said, we can't continue like this. Our people in the field can't continue and our system isn't built for it. On Friday, Federal District Judge Matthew J. Kazmarek ordered the Department of Homeland Security to relaunch former President Trump's so-called Remain in Mexico policy, ruling that the Biden administration had rushed to overturn the Trump policy without properly considering the merits of the policy. Quote, defendants are ordered to enforce and implement MPP, that is Migrant Protection Protocols, in good faith until such time as it has been lawfully rescinded in compliance with the Administrative Procedures Act, and until until such a time as the federal government has sufficient detention capacity to detain all aliens subject to mandatory detention, end quote, he wrote. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton and Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt brought the lawsuit. And that's our Washington Report for this week.